0: With less than a year to go before the 2024 presidential election, there continues to be a lot of chatter about the possible impact of a candidate on the ballot who is not a Republican or a Democrat. Over the years, third-party candidates have made a difference in several elections. The third-party candidate in history to get the largest percentage of votes was Teddy Roosevelt at 27%. Next... Was Ross Perot at 19% in 1992? His campaign didn't start until the same year of the election. Here he is talking about his life and politics in 1992.
1: We assume you're here because you enjoy listening to C Spence podcasts. If you're a regular listener, please consider supporting our nonprofit operation so we can continue to bring you quality public affairs podcasts like these. Visit cspan.org slash donate to learn more.
0: H. Ross Perot, let's start with the important questions. What's the H stand for? Henry. How come you don't use it? I do. When do you use it?
1: Whenever I sign my name.
0: You, anybody ever call you Henry? No. What, did they go right past the H and to the Ross when you were a
1: little kid? In my whole life, I have never referred to myself as H. Ross Perot. Fortune Magazine named me H. Ross Perot in November of 1968. A great guy, Arthur Lewis, named me H. Ross Perot. I've kidded him for years saying, normally a guy's mother names him, but Arthur renamed me and I just don't spend a lot of time thinking about things like that, so while I don't sign my name that way, I never refer to myself that way, I guess in the world of sound bites, I am H. Ross Perot. H is for Henry, it was my grandfather's name. Where'd you grow up? Texarkana, Texas five blocks from the Arkansas border. How long did you live there? Uh, From the time I was born until the time I took my first airplane ride to go to the Naval Academy.
0: What was the reason that your parents had gone there in the first
1: place? Uh, My dad uh, had to drop out of school when he was 14, worked as a cowboy when his dad died, walked to Texarkana 21 miles. That was not uncommon in those days. Uh, Became a cotton broker. He bought cotton from the farmers. It was a cotton farming center. Uh, My mother had lived there. He met her. Uh, They married. And uh, as I've said, when people have asked me over the years, how did it suddenly feel after years and years and years of having a very modest life to realize you were rich? And my reply is, I was born rich because of the two parents I had. No child could have had two better parents than my sister and I had. That's so much more important than any financial wealth. Parents alive today? Neither one are alive.
0: When did they die? My dad died in
1: 1955. My mother died in 1979. Did
0: they have a chance to see you successful?
1: My mother did. My dad uh, saw me uh, finish the Naval Academy. He never got to finish high school. It meant a great deal to him. And uh, it would have been a lot of fun if he could have been around as the company succeeded because he taught me business in his office as a child.
0: What did he do all his life?
1: He was a cotton broker. All his life. Yes, but he had hobbies. and One of his hobbies was buying and selling uh, livestock, trading horses. So as a child, he would take me on Friday to the auctions. As a little boy, he first let me sell bridles and saddles, but I couldn't take anything home. Then, when I got pretty good at it, he started letting me buy and sell a calf, but I had to, couldn't take it home. Day trader. And finally, I could buy and sell horses, but I could not take them home. And at seven years old, I had my first job breaking horses at a dollar a horse. And I sold garden seeds. I sold Christmas cards. I sold Saturday evening Post. Uh, I had paper routes. I collected for classified ads. And uh, more than anything else, though, I got to sit in his office and watch him do business with the farmers. Uh, he was a wonderful man. He was a very kind, decent man. His philosophy was never take advantage of the farmer because he works hard all year to produce a bale of cotton. The broker buys it and then sells it to the mills. Treat the farmer fairly, and he will come back to you year after year after year. Pretty good thing to teach a little boy. What was your mom like? Uh, she was great. Um, I have a thousand fond memories of her, but uh, she was a tiny little lady. We lived five blocks from the railroad tracks. The hoboes would come off the train during the Depression up the little dirt road past our house, and again and again and again they would come to our back door and ask for food. And while we didn't have a whole lot, she always gave them food. I'll never forget one day a hobo came up, took the food and said, Lady, do you have a lot of people come here? She said, Yes. And he says, Come out here and I'll show you why. And right kind of at the edge of the road, there was a mark. And he says, You see that? You're a mark. Now the term a mark originally came from hobos marking, saying this place will feed you. After he left, I said, Mother, do you want me to get rid of that? And she says, No, these are good people. They're just like us, but they're down on their luck. We should help them. Now, in a thousand ways, she taught me that, by example, not by lecture, by example. And God bless my dad, who nobody will ever write or talk about, anybody that ever worked for him when they got too old to work, and most of them were black, he kept paying them because they were people too, and they had families that needed to be taken care of. And every Sunday after church, he would go in over to their part of town. And believe me, it was a very definite part of town then. And he would go into their homes in the wintertime or sit on their porches in the summertime. And people didn't do that back then. But he did it because he loved those people. And everybody that worked for him carried his business card. And particularly every black man that worked for him understood that if anybody ever treated him improperly, he was to hand that person my dad's business card. And while he was not a wealthy man, he was a very modest man, he was a highly respected person. And nobody would be rude or improper with a person that worked for my dad. Now, see, but there were never any lectures. They just did it. And as a little boy, I saw all that. And it was a wonderful place to grow up.
0: Sister, older or younger, and what's she doing today? Older
1: sister, outstanding sister. She, uh, Everybody asked me the whole time I was growing up why I wasn't like my sister. She was a straight-A student and just an ideal child. Uh, she was a school teacher. She became vice principal of a large public school. Once EDS became financially successful uh, and I had money to give away, I asked her to run our foundation, and she has run the foundation since 1969, uh, this is a foundation that has no overhead. Nobody makes a penny. All of the money goes to charity. So she runs it as an act of love, does a brilliant job.
0: How much money do you give away every year?
1: A lot. I've given away well over $100 million.
0: In the, since 1969? Yes. And, uh, and what kind of, what's the criteria for giving money
1: away? Well, my first money, we, first I, time I had money, within 30 days, I gave half of it away. When EDS went public, I got $5 million dollars. And uh, I gave $2.5 million to an experimental school for disadvantaged children. This is children who would have no chance, statistically. They were going to prison or beyond welfare. Started when they were tiny, uh, got breakfast, lunch, and dinner. They got the loves, the hugs, the nurturing that I got at home. Uh, they got a proper diet. They, the logo of the school was a thumbprint, and that meant you are special, you are unique. There's only one person in the world like you, and because of this school, you can be anything you want to be. That school was a roaring success, and it it was part of the Dallas Public Schools, and sadly, it got wiped out one day by a federal judge on an integration order, and he did not know what he had done until after he had done it. So then we we, we now work with another school that's a private school that does the same thing. It's really exciting. These little children go to that school right now from the time they're three to the time they're nine. We're changing it now. We'll have the first contact when the mother's pregnant. In many cases, the child will come directly to the school right after birth. Keep the child until he finishes the third grade or she finishes the third grade. Here's the exciting thing. These are little children that in the general population, by the end of the third grade are out of the system, hanging on the ropes. Ninety percent of these children in public schools in the fourth grade are on the A honor roll. That tells you two things. You can take a segment of society that is destined to go to prisoner welfare and send them to college. It also tells you the public schools are too easy. Ninety percent of any group coming out of any school shouldn't be on the A honor roll. But from that population, a hundred percent that just started the first grade is on the ropes almost. That's the way you can change the country. But it'll be a generational change. And it's really exciting to see these little children that didn't get anything that I got all day, every day, and all night for my parents, have a chance.
0: Can you remember the first time you ever got up on your feet and people paid attention to what you had to say?
1: No. <laughs> Maybe they never did. No, I can't. Oh, well, I guess yeah, you've, nobody ever asked I never thought about it. I was president of the student council in a junior college in County. They had decided to build a new junior college right across the street from the present junior college on a square block of land. I and the other students felt that was a great mistake and that they should build a bigger campus so that the college could grow. This was unthinkable at this time, but in a very respectful way, I made a presentation to the Chamber of Commerce and to the school board, and they weren't all that excited to get it. And I took a pretty good level of heat for even saying anything. But we were able to build a consensus in my city town, Texarkana, a little town that the college should be moved, and it was moved to a 90-acre campus, and at the time I was there it was 200 students, now it's several thousand. So I learned several things there, that you should stand up for what you believe in. Number two, if you do, expect to get cut up. Number three, if you're worried about your image, it's probably not good to get around it.
0: The reason I ask you that is you know you get a lot of response out of when you speak. You've been at the press club three times within about 16, 18 months, which is, I don't know that anybody's ever done that before. They obviously, you know why they invite you back all the time?
1: Do they tell you why they? No, I have no idea. Everybody asked me that at the reception, and every time I speak, I say, everybody asks me, why did they invite you back, Perot? And I say, I don't know.
0: you get reaction once you've spoken in the last two speeches? And
1: I think we'd have to ask, it's my understanding they get a, a very large reaction, but you should check that with them.
0: But what do you do when you give a speech? I mean, you obviously know when you get to the audience, you can look out there and see them. What what do you do? What's your technique?
1: I talk about what I believe in, and I write my own speeches. And that, if there's a technique, that's it. I just talk about what I really believe in.
0: When you get to what you believe in, do you sit around and talk to a bunch of staff people that work for you? you No, I don't have anybody.
1: No, I just, for example, I collect newspaper clippings. I read newspapers and magazines, tear things out, that are facts and numbers and so on and so forth. And when I get ready to write a speech, for example, I spent two days on the speech I gave today. I typed it on a typewriter that I had when I was a young officer in the Navy and then uh, have a great uh, young lady that works with me in my office and she cleaned it up, fixed it up, and got it uh, readable in type that's easier to read when you speak. And that's it.
0: When did you start doing that, taking the articles and keeping them?
1: A number of years ago, I would read things that interested me, like uh, whether it's on education, on international affairs, or on the debt, or uh, on uh, the development of children. Uh, on medical research is another interest. So anything I'm interested in, I just sort of let it pile up, and then we take a, hey, you know, take an hour off some afternoon and get it all filed and organized. And uh, any time I make a speech, I just have to go disappear. and. Uh, get it organized and write it and in nearly every case this is an unusual case here I try to really get organized for the press club normally I just make rough handwritten notes and speak from notes probably it shows too but that's the way I do it
0: where do you live now? in Dallas you have a company now Perot Systems? Perot Systems
1: Systems in Dallas it's uh, headquartered here in Virginia
0: you mentioned EDS earlier what was EDS?
1: well EDS is a computer services company Uh, it's we created a whole new segment of the computer industry where you go into large companies, tell them in advance uh, what they're going to get, what it's going to cost, how long it'll take to build it, and then operate it for 10 years on a predetermined price, uh, which has a great appeal for companies over just uh, sort of uh, finding out each year what your budget for computers is. And uh, that was a great adventure. Uh, It's fun to talk to young entrepreneurs, Uh, And it's fun to talk to young people, but see, they feel like they uh, go to Harvard Business School. All they want to know is, how did you make all that money? And how did you get the idea to start? Now, they assume I brought in McKinsey Company, had five-year plans. None of that's the way things really happen. And the story of my net worth, I never had a goal to make a lot of money, never have cared about money. My idea was considered so bad when I started that nobody else would touch it. And I was stuck with the whole thing. And I had to bootstrap it. And fortunately, it worked. But I would love to have had an investor. But everybody that looked at it said, Son, you're going against IBM. You'll never make it. Then, a few months into the game, uh, in my first account that I signed. Now, here is life in the trenches. Frito-Lay, first big customer. IBM got Republic Bank and Arthur Young come out with IBM and explain to Herman Lay, the founder of Frito Lay, that if he did business with me, it would bankrupt him. This was just this strange little company with this guy with a strange idea. And when they left, Mr. Lay, who started out cooking potato chips in his kitchen and delivering them in his truck, looked around the room and smiled. He says, you know, these boys must have something or all these big companies wouldn't be overreacting this way. Now, the world's a funny place. I later became IBM's largest customer. Uh, uh, Arthur Young was my accounting firm. And when Republic Bank failed, I had the interesting uh, assignment for about a 30 to 45 day period of guaranteeing the transaction that was pending so that nothing would be interrupted in the process. So you live long enough, the world comes full circle, I guess.
0: Let's go back to Texarkana and the junior college, which you were there, what, Two Two years. In the Naval Academy, right? Yes. How did you get the appointment to the Naval Academy?
1: It's very important for young people to understand things like this. We didn't know anybody. We didn't have any political pull. I couldn't get an appointment to the Naval Academy. I had tried for three years, senior year of high school, first year, second year. And one day, a telegram came, and I have that telegram framed in my office. You have a principal appointment to the U.S. Naval Academy, signed by the senator. You remember who it was? Senator W. Leo Daniel. Of course I remember who it was. So I was thrilled, and I went. And I wrote him a thank you letter. Years later, after EDS was successful, a man called me and said, Ross, didn't you ever wonder how you got that appointment? I said, I sure have. He said, well, I was the senator's aide. We were cleaning out his office. And I said, Senator, we have an unfilled appointment to the Naval Academy. He said, does anybody want it? I said, there's this boy from Texarkana who's been trying for three years. And the senator said, give it to him. He said, Ross, your name never came up. Now, see, that changed my life, right? I got to go to a great school, got a great engineering education, and was taught leadership. Let me give you a contrast. Don Eflin, a man on the factory floor at General Motors, accepted at MIT as a young man, couldn't afford to go accepted at West Point as a young man, and failed the eye exam, and spent his life on the factory floor. The difference between Don Eflin and myself is I passed the eye exam. Don Eflin is smarter than I am, and I don't ever forget that. Now, I'll tell you another thing I never forget. If I'm driving down the street, and say there's a road crew working, and I look at those guys, they're taxpayers, and it's people like that that made it possible for me to have an education. So I have been very, very lucky. And the luck continues. So I go to the Naval Academy. Had a great experience there. What years? 49 to 53. Now keep in mind, I'd never seen a ship, but I knew I wanted to go. I'd never seen the ocean, but I knew I wanted to go. I'd never been disciplined or corralled or taught to march or do anything, but I knew I wanted to go. I got there, and I loved it. And everybody says, didn't you feel strange being locked up for a year? There was more to do inside the Naval Academy than there was in my hometown. It was terrific. I met wonderful people from all over the United States. I didn't know anybody from all over the United States. And at the end of the first year, an interesting thing happened. You were evaluated on leadership by your classmates, the upperclassmen, your military officers, and your academic officers. At the end of the first year, they posted that for the first time for my class. And I was ranked first in the class. And it was like learning you could play the piano by ear. You know, I saw that, and I didn't even know what it meant. And that kind of ranking kept happening, and I realized, you know, this is apparently a skill I have that I had nobody had ever brought up before, never thought about. And uh, it was just something new. Then, And I had, a, just like I say, that four years was wonderful. The people I met, uh, I had the uh, honor of being the president of the senior class, the junior class was a chairman of the honor committee. So I just had wonderful experiences and then had four great years at sea.
0: As you're going through those early years, do you remember people that taught you something?
1: Oh, boy. Number one, my mom and dad. Uh, Number two, I had some great teachers. I had one great teacher, Mrs. Grady Duck, who my junior year in high school looked up at me one day, said, Ross, it's a shame you're not as smart as your friends. And I really had some outstanding friends. I had a, the young people I grew up with were really an inspiration to me because they were always, they were better than I was at almost everything. And they were people you looked up to and respected. And they were really bright. I said, Ms. Duck, I'm as smart as they are, but they just study all the time. And Ms. Duck said, Ross, talk is cheap. Well, that got to me. I said, Mrs. Duck, I will make straight A's the next six weeks. And she just laughed and walked away. I studied, and she, so she got, got to me. I studied night and day and made all A's and one B. And then after that, made straight A's through high school, which gave me the academic record that allowed me to go to the Naval Academy. At the end of my first year at the Naval Academy, I finished right at the top of my class in English. She taught English. When I went home that summer, I went to her house and thanked her. And she was a very commanding person, uh, commanding presence. She said, well, just out of curiosity, why didn't you write me? I said, well, Mrs. Duck, I thought about writing you. But I knew that no matter how many times I rewrote it, you would find a mistake at it and circle it in red pencil and send it back to me. Well, she just broke up. She says, I probably would have. So she had an impact. There was a Mr. Claude Pinkerton who was the advisor to the student council who, when this whole thing came up about moving to junior college, uh, I sought his advice and he said, there's only one issue here, Ross, and that is stand on principle. Whatever you think you should do, that's what you should do. And don't worry about the controversy. Just do what you think is right. So that was a, I had been taught that by my parents, but he, he was a wonderful man, he is a wonderful man. Mrs. Duck has passed away, Mr. Pinkton's still alive.
0: Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China. And full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. With Kizik hands free shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks.
1: How many years at sea? Four years at sea, two years on a destroyer. Got on at two o'clock in the morning, And nine months later, I'd gone all the way around the world. That's a terrific experience for a boy from Texas who had never been anywhere. I hitchhiked in the summertime, looked around. But to have that experience, it gave me an opportunity to see the world. Now, it's really interesting. See, back when I grew up, the the geography courses were terrific. I knew where everything was, couldn't afford to go. Now we live in a world where everybody can afford to go, and they don't know where it is because they don't teach geography anymore. It's funny. But uh, we had a great adventure, went around the world, came home. Uh, by then, I had uh, I'd met my present wife while I was a senior at Naval Academy. She was still in college and uh, married her in 1956. Kids? I have five children. How old? Well, it's from 34 on down to 21.
0: Someone has made as much money in their life as you have has to deal with this business of kids and inheritance and all that, and people talk about this so much. What's your philosophy about kids and money?
1: Well, right after EDS became a publicly owned company and Fortune wrote the story entitled The Fastest Richest Texan Ever and all that stuff, uh, people started asking me when I first felt like a big success, Now my children were small then, and I said repeatedly. I don't feel like a big success and I won't feel like a big success until all five of these children are adults with a deep concern for other people who are first-class citizens and are willing to do something about that concern, not just express concern, but do something. Well, thanks largely to their mother, all five are just world-class young people. I have a son and four daughters. Uh, The son is the most well-known. He uh, He has my name. Everybody said, oh, he's living in your shadow. I live in his shadow. There's no better place to live than in your son's shadow. In college, he decided one year, summer, he was going to jump scoot. So he went to Fort Benning and got his jump wings. Then he decided he wanted to go to the course you can go to in Quantico while you're in college. Thirteen weeks of Marine officer training. had that experience. Then he took a Navy cruise one summer. He got out of college and didn't want to take a trip, wanted to learn to fly a helicopter. So he learned to fly the helicopter, and as soon as he got his license, he wanted to fly it to Alaska. So then he flew it to Alaska, flew it to within 40 miles of Russia, came home and says, I can fly this thing around the world. This is a single-engine helicopter. Anybody that's got any sense won't fly one over a big lake. I said, no, I don't want to lose you. And he kept coming in, coming in, coming in. Finally, an Australian announced that he was going to do it. No one had ever done it. Ross came in and looked me in the eye, and he said... "Uh, You raised me to be this way, and now you don't like me the way I am. And I said, okay, buddy, that does it. But if you start this, just don't quit. And he laughed and walked out. Twelve days later, he took off. The Australian had been gone seven days. He passed the Australian in two days. And the Australian took over a year to do it. Ross made it around the world in 30 days. Most critical part of the trip was from Japan to the Aleutians. He tried to get the Russians to let him land in the Kuril Islands. They wouldn't. He came up with a creative idea. He walked in one day with, business, with uh, business Suite magazine and it was a two-page ad from Bank of America that showed a container ship. He laid it on my desk. He says, if I can find, this was in the 12-day period, a container ship halfway between the Aleutians and Japan. I can put fuel in the container. I can land on the container. I can refuel and go on to Japan. I said, well, that's a good idea, but can you find one? He came back in a few hours. He had one. The whole trip was driven. He had a one-hour time slot. I have a picture in my office. He landed on that ship just ahead of a typhoon. There's a wave off the bow of the ship, fifty feet high. Then he got away, so he's halfway there. Then he took off after he refueled. It was so rough they had to lash the helicopter down. The ship was rolling to the point where it would have slid off the top. For three hours in the middle of the night in the northern Pacific, all of his calculations showed that he would go into the water at night. Not a good thing. The Russians had sent him word right after he took off from Japan that if he tried to land the Kuril Islands they'd shoot him down. So he wasn't tempted to go over there. So he just pragmatically decided I will get as close to the Aleutians as I can before I run out of fuel. The wind turned around blew him in, he landed with ten minutes of fuel. He had an oil leak. He figured that uh, if the leak didn't get any worse, he could keep flying. He flew all the way to Texas with the oil being transferred from the engine to the transmission. Fortunately, it's the same white oil, and every time they'd land, they'd have to shift it. And uh, believe it or not, that helicopter is in the Smithsonian now with a bad uh, gasket still there. And Ross became the youngest man ever honored by the Smithsonian Museum. He replaced Lindbergh, uh, and uh, he made it home. But then I worried to death. But I was afraid it would, you know, he won the Langley medals. Uh, very few people have it. It's for the technical difficulty of the flight. Six people had won it. Wright brothers were two, and that kind of folks. Uh, the only astronaut was the first astronaut, Alan Shepard. Uh, he won the Sikorsky Trophy. He just got all kinds of recognition, and I watched him like a hawk. Didn't change him a bit. Then he came in, in a few months, and he says, I'll never feel right about myself unless I go into the service. And I said, well, what branch will you go into? He says, I'll let you know. Well, he'd been in everything but the Coast Guard and the Air Force, so he tried to the Air Force and became a fighter pilot. He uh, went to uh, OCS with a group of former enlisted men. At the end of OCS, they selected him as the cadet that would make the most outstanding officer. And I said, son, they wouldn't have picked you on day one. You had to earn that. Here's the kid with a silver spoon in his mouth. Then he went out to fly, and he had a great adventure in the Air Force as a fighter pilot. Won the Top Gun Award before the movie. None of his sisters knew what it was. Now it's like having an Oscar in the house. Uh, Just had a great experience in the Air Force, and suddenly... An Air Force sergeant recommended him, a second lieutenant, as one of America's ten outstanding young men. He called me, and I said, well, that's nice. Guy doesn't have a typewriter. You won't get it, but that's from the heart. And sergeants don't recommend second lieutenants for anything. About four months later, he called one day. He says, you know, that guy must have had a typewriter. I'd forgotten. I said, what do you mean? And he said, and he he received it. Now, the proudest moment in my life is what happened next. And I said, well, Ross, that's great. He says, Dad, there's just one thing that's important to me. And I said, what's that? He says, I want that sergeant sitting right next to you the night I get it. Now, there's a kid with his head straight. So he finished his tour in the Air Force, married uh, way over his head like I did, has three great kids, and just when I thought he was totally settled down, I found out last summer he had had an opportunity to fly the MiG-29 and had done it. Uh, had had just had one last great thrill. I hope he's out of it now. But he went straight down the runway, put that thing on his tail, and went up to 70,000 feet. And uh, that's something an American fighter pilot would never think he could have a chance to do. But the Russians were there with an air show, asking if he wanted to do it. And he did it. Now, I can go through each of my daughters, but we'll have to have a six-hour show. But they are all too good to be true. Two are married. I have four grandchildren, expect two more this year. I have another one getting married this year. So it's a busy year.
0: Would you, would you say that you had a large disappointment in your life? And if you had, what, what, what was it?
1: Oh, you have a lot of disappointments. And one of the things that bothers me, see, everybody thinks life is carefully planned. See, Life is a series of, in my case, fortunate accidents. See, I'm fortunate I met Margo. I met her on a blind date. I was lucky to get a job with IBM. I really, you know, we'll come back to that if you want to. But sure. And then young people, I've had people in, in, the, in the best schools in the country say, uh, Mr. Pro, if I were like you, I could do what you've done. And this goes all the way through the rescue in Iran, whatever. And I said, what do you mean? They said, if I never failed, if I never felt this, if I never was disappointed, if I didn't feel pain, if I didn't hurt, if I didn't cry, then I could do what you do." And I said, well, you really think that's the way it is? And then we talk about that. I think it's really important uh, for everyone to understand that if you're going to get in the ring and do things, you're going to get your nose broken. You're going to have scars all over your body. And the only way to avoid that is to stay on the sidelines. That just goes with it. Oh, sure, there are a lot of frustrations, a lot of disappointments. The ones that would have broken my heart, no. They would have occurred around my children. And five out of five are just pearls. And uh, I can't tell you how proud we are of them.
0: Money, greed, you talk about that. uh, Do you ever feel greedy?
1: Well, this is bizarre because, see, I'm not interested in money. My wife is not interested in money. And uh, it's just something that happened because nobody would invest in my company and because I surrounded myself with a group of very talented people who built a great company. It wouldn't be nearly the company it is today if we hadn't had all these talented people. And as a business executive, you understand the multiplier of having a talented team around you. I really have been fortunate to have those talented teams. Um, you can't take it with you. I uh, said that to one friend from West Texas one day. He says, then I'm not going. But you can't take it with you. It won't buy happiness. It's the most overrated thing in the world. See, when we got out of the Navy, we drove into Dallas, and everything we owned was in the trunk of a 52 Plymouth. And Margo and I were just as happy then as we are today. Things won't bring you happiness. Happiness is a state of mind. It's the saddest thing in the world to see people chase the dollar.
0: Why do they do it?
1: I just think they don't have their heads straight myself.
0: And how destructive is it
1: to the country? No. Well, greed is terribly destructive. Uh, We are born selfish. Any psychiatrist will tell you that. We have to be taught to care and share. And so greed is destructive to civilized society. You see, you're born sort of as a one-person unit, hunter-survivalist. And then when you are in a community surrounded by other people, you have to share and care to make society work. So greedy people are destructive. The junk, you just go through the Bond era. That was a very destructive thing in our country. A lot of damage.
0: You know that everybody's asking the same question when are you going to run for president are you going to run for president you told us you're waiting for the 50 state sign up you think it'll happen
1: I don't know I didn't think so Uh, the night it came up on Larry King's show it was after the first question at the beginning of the hour was will you run no then it bounced all around during the hour we talked about a lot of things then the last question was is there any set of circumstances under any circumstances would you run And I said, just one. I have all these people that write me and call me day after day after day who are basically just good, salt-of-the-earth, ordinary people. Most of the letters are written in longhand. If those people on their own as the owners of this country want to go out in 50 states with nobody programming them, nobody telling them what to do, and put me on the ballot as an independent I will run as their servant. But if I do, I don't want to belong to anybody but them. And I would not consider running within the two-party system because you have to compromise and make deals to get there. I like and I feel personally that the reason our system of government is not working very well now is that the ordinary person in our country, the owner, has abdicated his responsibilities as owner. We're supposed to have a government that comes from us to Washington. The people in Washington are supposed to be our servants. Interestingly enough, we now have a government that comes from Washington at us, and the people feel powerless. And maybe the best example I can give you right here in Washington is our servants in Washington are surrounded by quadruple layers of security. And a few blocks down the street, the owners of the country who live in Washington, D.C., live in n- neighborhoods where you're afraid to go outside in the daytime, much less at night. Now, let's assume you had some folks working at your house that, uh, in, a, in a high-risk area, but they were all covered up with security. And you were absolutely on your own when you walked out on the street. See, there's, there, that is the most interesting phenomenon when I come to Washington. I say, now, isn't this interesting? Is the owners are unprotected and at risk all the time, and their elected servants have protected themselves like royalty. The challenge is to have the city safe. In a system that works, you wouldn't have Congress and the White House looking out the window at the murder capital of the United States.
0: Have you thought through what happens if those 50 states are signed up?
1: If those 50 states are signed up, I told the people I would run and I will run. I have told them that there's only one condition, and I have to, they have to cross this bridge pretty early because they have to put this name on the ballot pretty early, on the petitions pretty early. said, so I will have to have a vice president who I feel is a more qualified person than I am. And it, I will not just reach for an empty suit to play golf and go to funerals. This person will have to be totally qualified to replace me if anything should happen to me. Run with you? Absolutely. You'll
0: you'll you'll
1: pick them. Absolutely, that's the way it works. If you're an independent, that's the way it works in the party system too. But as an independent, you've got to pick your vice president. That person goes on and goes on the ballot with you. But the important thing is that that person be fully qualified. And really, the acid test is could that person be chief of staff?
0: Have you thought about that person yourself?
1: I have to because I have people who are out trying to get ballots signed that can't do it until that person's name is on their petition. When are you going to give them a name? Pretty soon. Weeks? Days? I don't take forever to do things, so it would probably be more in the days than weeks. I I owe them that. I can't ask people to go walk across Death Valley and say, but I'm not going to give you what you have to have to uh, perform.
0: If you're taking a peek at how many states, you got to sign up by how, what time?
1: Well, uh, the most, the shortest deadline is Texas. May the 6th. There's a new uh, Supreme Court case that says that no state can have a deadline that early. But uh, all the people who are working in Texas say they'd rather go ahead and get it out of the way before May the 6th and not have a controversy with the state of Texas. So that one is the shortest one. Most of them are July, and a lot of them clear out till August. Supreme Court decision, as it was explained to me, says that you don't have to have this done until after the conventions.
0: Now, is there a state that makes it impossible for you to sign up?
1: It's not pretty in any state because the two parties, over the years, have it set up as a whole series of difficult hurdles to get through. For example, in Texas, if you voted in the primary, you can't sign the petition. Uh, it varies from state to state, but there are all these little hurdles. The exciting thing is, is that just, and all the pros professional people who run campaigns called right away to assure me that ordinary people couldn't do this, it was too complex. Well, they're doing pretty well, and they're out there in all 50 states on their own now.
0: And when you think about it running, mate, are uh, you thinking about somebody that's already in
1: office or somebody that's not? Somebody that's not. A woman or a man? The most qualified person I can find. Certain region of the country? I don't want to get pol- political, let's, you know, let's assume he's from a, a state so small they don't even have a delegate, or she's from a state so small they don't even have a delegate. Not that there is one. Uh, But it's the best qualified person. Uh, That's all that matters. Looking for another business person? Looking. No, I would want someone who understood business and economics, because we have so few people in Washington who do. Anybody that understood business, economics, and debt couldn't sleep at night with the problem we have now.
0: How about, as you know, once this happens, you're going to be under a tremendous amount of scrutiny. Question, have you ever been a Republican or a Democrat?
1: I'm an independent. I voted for the person all my life.
0: All your life? Yes. Is there a way to define what you think? Is there an ideology that you want to be known for?
1: I think I expressed my beliefs as clearly as I can at the press club today. That takes about 30 or 40 minutes to cover. But uh, in terms of what I feel the country needs to do, uh, I got to try to just say as plainly as I could today. Have you looked at how much it would cost you to run for president? Costs a lot—fifty to a hundred million dollars in that range. And you're
0: prepared to pay for this yourself?
1: I do not want to take money from any special interest. Um, I can't take it with me when I go. I, if the these ordinary folks in fifty states do their job, I told them I would run. Now I can't give them a con game and say, well, I'll run, but I'll only spend $3. No, if and anybody that knows me understands that if and when we ever get to that point, then we will run uh, a really first-class campaign, not a, not a low-budget campaign.
0: What do you say to people that automatically react, as many professionals have, uh, it's never happened, it won't happen, uh, third parties just don't make it in this country?
1: I so say that's up to the people. I'd, I'd, the, here's... I feel very strongly that anybody that could do this job properly for the people probably doesn't want it. Anybody bright enough to understand that job wouldn't want it. Anybody that thinks that job through in terms of how brutal it is on everybody you love wouldn't want it. You just That's the most unattractive job in the world from a selfish point of view. Now, the people who are intrigued with it, who are willing to go out there and promise anybody anything, anytime and go $400 billion a year more in debt just this year are driven by ego and their desire for power. Now, the American people make these decisions. If that's who they want, fine. If they want somebody as their servant, fine. Uh, I'm not lusting to do this thing. Uh, If they want me to do it, I will do it. I'll give it all I've got. And I'll be glad to go back to Texas when it's over.
0: What would you say about your own ego? Big Small? Can you, have you looked at yourself? I, no, I
1: think it would be better to ask the people I've worked with over the years. But I, I think if you, I, I, I think that if there is a secret to my business success, I have a very keen understanding of my limitations, and I've always felt that I had an advantage over people who had so much talent that literally they couldn't find anybody better than they were, and they tried to do it all themselves. In nearly everything I do, it's very obvious to me from day one, I can't do most of it, so I've got to surround myself with very talented people who can do it. Then I have to have an environment for them that is rewarding for them, too, so that they enjoy being part of that team. Uh, I learned a long, long time ago that if you want to accomplish great things, the best thing to do is give the credit to other people.
0: You undoubtedly looked at how others run their campaigns. What are some of the things you might do if you get into this that you would avoid what you think are the pitfalls of the other candidates?
1: Uh, I'm not prepared to say at this point. I think if we, if we do get into this, we will not follow the time honored pattern of the others.
0: Would you challenge the two other candidates to a debate?
1: I would be happy to debate them. Uh, in terms of the thing I wouldn't do is I would not say or do I would not get into this mud wrestling that they like to get into. I would not want to say or do anything that splits the country. The strategy of each party now is to try to break the country to pieces and appeal to certain segments of those pieces and get enough electoral votes to get their person in and they keep forgetting is after November there's China scattered all over the floor broken and it'll take two or three years to get the melting pot back into one piece. Now we are a melting pot. And we need to work as a team and not be all divided up and stressed out and hating one another and, you know, playing to our uh, differences. We need to learn to play to our strengths.
0: But you are critical of Congress.
1: I'm critical of the system and not the individuals. I have said again and again that you could replace everybody in Congress, find the best people in the country, put them in that system, and in 24 months they look just like the people you replaced them with. For example, all this strange stuff you see, if you have people working in your company and you're never around, you don't oversee it, you don't hold them accountable, well, first thing, they may start taking paper clips on Then maybe they start taking pencils on Then they say, hmm, you know, we could write a check, do a little bit of that. Then they say, well, maybe we could use the old guy's car, because it's in the garage and he's never here. And finally they say, well, why don't we use his airplane, he's never here. You just corrupt them over time. Now, who are the owners? We're the owners. We're the owners. And we've just acted like they are our bosses, and we are their servants. They've got us working five months a year now just paying taxes for a system that doesn't work. As I said at the press club, when you're $4 trillion in debt, you ought to say, well, we should have created utopia with that. And, in fact, we have a country that has all kinds of problems plus the debt. The system didn't work. Because we, the people, the owners of the country, haven't been good stewards of our country, and we haven't acted like we own it, and now the process is reversed, the system comes at us and not from us. We've got to change it.
0: Would you surround yourself with political pros? No. Would you hire consultants?
1: Probably. To do... You mean... This is... You're, are you talking about for a campaign?
0: I'm assuming that you're going to get in this before it's over. Well, no, and if
1: you, we're at the campaign still. Campaign. Um,
0: Absolutely. still talking about the campaign.
1: We have to put together a plan of what to do. But as far as taking the same old time-worn practices, you know, having the dirty tricks group, uh, having all these odd sick things that they have around campaigns, no. I wouldn't wouldn't want to be a part of any of that.
0: Would you... Uh, like to do political advertising like you see it now or would you have a different twist on that?
1: I hope we'd have a different twist because all that is is just people shouting.
0: Would you like the handshaking and the
1: No, I the love people. No, I love it, with people, real people, nothing better.
0: What part of it though wouldn't you like?
1: The phony part. Which is? Uh, the phony part all the formal stuff. You know, the guy that stops you on the street and wants to visit with you is the real part. People, if you're having lunch somewhere, that just come over and visit with you. That's the real part. Uh, formal ceremonies, uh, the thing, you, you know, fundraising dinners. Uh, anybody, you know, that's got enough money to pay a $1,000 ought to be too smart to go to one. Now, only in America could you have people line up like sheep to have their picture taken with a candidate and pay extra for that. Then, before you get to eat, the candidate gives you a short talk and leaves. Then you sit there and eat. And this is the big event that, by the time you get your picture taken, has cost you 2000 bucks. If there's anything more phony than that, I don't know what it is. I wouldn't be a part of it. I won't go to it. It stinks. Now, that's the current system we have.
0: What's your limit on, on political contributions to your campaign, if you get in?
1: Well, as I, I've said, that after... Uh, uh, we get the petition signed, and we know this thing 's going to go on i 'd like for ordinary folks across the country to make the country go. I want them to put five dollars into it because I want them to have skin in the game.
0: What would be if you won your plan to reduce the deficit i 've heard you give the you know the troops in Europe and the expenses in Japan, Japan. how soon? would you bring this thing into some balance?
1: Now, the first thing I would want to do is create what I call the electronic town hall, where I could explain issues to the people in detail and the people could respond over television. Then the people would respond by congressional district in a way that their congressman would know exactly what they wanted. Now, this is whether it's a new health care plan, how to cut the budget, new tax system, you name it.
0: How soon would you do the electronic town hall?
1: Day one. You've got to have it right away. You've got to be able to tell the owners what's going on.
0: How can you do it that fast?
1: Well, the TV is here. Uh, I wish interactive television were here. Then you could really do it. On cable, a lot of the cable networks have the ability to respond. And for those who don't have cable, you're stuck with a telephone until interactive television comes. How
0: do you trust the information you're getting?
1: By doing polls also. Cut it both ways. Pretty simple. See, if, if you, you see the telephone response, then you poll by congressional district, and everybody says that's accurate to within 2%, right? And you check it both ways.
0: I mean, do you see yourself sitting in the White House, and you say, all right, we've got an issue here, and... Well, it's an extension
1: should... of the old fireside chat, but the technology has changed so completely that you can now get a response from the owners. The people in Congress, Congress now is totally dominated by lobbyists. I want Congress totally dominated by the people in their congressional district. The reason... Now, Congress is not bad, but the reason they're dominated by lobbyists is that television time for your next election costs so much. And these are the boys who are running up and down the halls all day, every day. You and I could take a five-minute walk right now, and we'd both be laughing in five minutes at what we see. Go to the Ways and Means Committee where they're working on the new tax bill. You know, you could get killed in the rush. And none of it has anything to do with a good tax bill for the American people. All of it has to do with putting another patch on that old inner tube for a special interest. So you explain an issue. Here are our priorities. Number one, you've got to keep the job base intact. You don't want to let it crumble while you're fixing everything else because your tax base is a function of how many people are working. And one of the things that are of greatest concern to the American people is that uh, we're losing jobs in this country. You're going to have to work on that problem on an industry-by-industry basis. You're going to then have to have a plan, company by company, on the big companies in trouble. You're going to have to bring in people who are the most knowledgeable people in each of these industries. Uh, Bring these people in overnight, put them to work immediately, and come up with rough, crude plans first. Keep everybody informed as you do it. Come down with good plans. This is what our successful international competitors are doing. What we do in our country is get up every morning and break businesses' legs and then wonder why the job base is deteriorating. That's only part of the reason. But there is a lot of work to be done to stabilize the job base, turn it around, and there can only be one goal. There's only one way to protect the job base, and that is to have the words, made in the USA, the world standard of excellence. Each of our companies must make the finest products in the world. Can we? Yes. No question. Now, when? Not until we start. When do we start? The first day, because that's the highest priority. You do not want to have the music stop as far as the U.S. economy. It has been pillaged and plundered for the last 12 years. Had a trillion dollars in 1980 in debt. Now we've got $4 trillion, nothing to show for it.
0: If you had an electronic town hall and you took a vote on, would you abide by the wishes of the people under all circumstances?
1: It's their country.
0: All right, I'll give you an example. Let's say you took a poll and you said, should we segregate or integrate? And they came back and said, segregate. What would you do then?
1: It's unconstitutional. I'd go back. You wouldn't take that because that's not... First off, you see, if if they brought that up, I'd say, wait a minute, for God's sakes. We are imploding economically. Now, you know, just because some guy in white sheets comes up and wants me to put that in the town hall, I'd say, hold your breath, sucker, because the last thing we need now is to put stress in the melting pot. Forget it. We're not going to turn the clock back. Now, you know, so if you, fella, want to do that, go do it on your own. But we've got a patient here on the operating table, and we've got to fix the most critical problem. And you're bringing up an old issue that is on the way to being fixed, but not there. We're not going back to that. It's unconstitutional. And let's not have stray bullets. You know, somebody could come in and say, what about the gray owl? Let's take that first. Well, the environment, you know, that's a piece of the endangered species list. But compared to keeping the financial pump going, you can't discuss it because if the financial pump breaks, you don't have any money to take care of the gray aisle. And everybody understands that. First things first, you work your way down the list. So you've you got to get your companies turned around. You've got to stop uh, spending beyond your means. you get a new Graham Rudman with no uh, loopholes in it. You've got to have a new tax system fast because the current tax system is corrupt and flawed. And it's got to be, number one, it's got to be fair. Number one, A. it's got to raise the money. And number two, it should be paperless for most of the people. Then just to get everybody's head straight about who works for whom, right away I'd like to get a law passed that only the people can give Congress and the White House a pay raise. Because if they're happy with the performance, maybe you can get a pay raise. Congress thinks they deserve one, fine, but giving themselves a 23% pay raise during the tax and budget summit, no. So get that straight. Then change the voting date of Saturday and Sunday, get away from Tuesday, let more people vote. Just a whole series of little house-cleaning things that are simple, common sense, that nobody... I'm just fascinated. Nobody will even raise, say, well, no, we can't vote on Saturday and Sunday. Everybody knows that's a good idea. Stop exit polling. Stop releasing data from East Coast polls until Hawaii is closed. Little, simple things to clean up the system. Shorten the time for elections.
0: Can you do that without breaking the First Amendment? What's that? Can you stop a network, say, from doing exit polling under the First Amendment? In other words, can you pass a law that says you can't exit poll? Well, we
1: probably have to get about 30 lawyers on that one. But you can understand the inequity of it because it really impacts what happens out west. So, my thought is uh, we sit down with everybody concerned, starting with the press because they would be the ones most concerned about it, say, look, this is really damaging the election process. Now we want the right. I said, okay, fine, guys. It's really not fair. Yeah, but it's something we want to do, you know, it gives us sound bites and we can charge more for commercials. I said, you just lost me. Now, compared to having a fair election, you guys uh, are in trouble. So then you go to the people saying, all right, we've got a problem here. Now, we can amend this dang Constitution if we have to, but uh, we've got to have fair elections. And exit polling really distorts what happens across the country. The American people say, I'll leave it the way it is. We don't care. Well, fine. Then I'm a happy man. The owners have spoken. Right? Terrific.
0: What about in a military situation? I don't mean to keep you in these hypotheticals, but... uh, No, that's a good one. Say that you have have an intelligence organization that tells you we've got a serious threat overseas. Well, that would
1: be a change. I mean I nice know. nice but, assumption. Normally but, they don't they didn't know the Berlin Wall was going to fall until it fell, didn't know Gorbachev was going to have a coup. It's it's so I'm I'm glad you got that one cleaned up for But let's say
0: it. let's say you have the special They're on top of it for what? Okay. They're on top of it, they tell you it's a threat. You'd go to the public and say, Should we bomb Iraq? And the public public comes back no, and says no. No,
1: no. All right. This is not a situation where we're being attacked, the one you're defining. This is a situation where we are going to war. Okay? And this is a situation where we have all the time in the world to go to war. We decided that we would take five or six months to get ready to go to war, right? Well, certainly you should discuss that with the American people over the town hall because their sons and daughters fight that war, right? Now, they should understand and why we're going to war. Now, let's take the example you gave me. It was four months before the White House could figure out why we were doing it. One time it was jobs, next time it was oil. Finally, they got it together, and it was, had to get rid of nuclear, chemical, bacteriological, and Hussein. Well, guess what we've still got? Nuclear, chemical, bacteriological, and Hussein. Didn't accomplish any objective. Say, but we recovered Kuwait for the Emir. Now, if I knock on your door and say, I'd like to borrow your son. Go to the Middle East so that this dude with 70 wives who's got a minister for sex, to find him a virgin every Thursday night, can have his throne back, you would probably hit me right in the mouth. I said, well, but, you know, strategically it's important, so on and so forth. Finally talk you into it. But see, the point is, what were we trying... We had to recover Kuwait. Only in America, after we had troops on the ground in the Middle East, would we let Assad of Syria, who killed 243 Marines in Beirut and blew up Pan Am 103 cement his hold over a big chunk of Lebanon. Now, if you don't let a guy take a country, why do you let him take a country? It's just simple. We always have to have a bad boy of choice. This is what happens when you've got this imperial leadership we've got. We made Noriega what he was. He was the CIA's main man in Central America. You know who was down there talking to him and on and on and on and on and on. Now, suddenly he got out of line. Then we got to deal with a Panamanian major to capture him. Then we couldn't get our act together to have a special forces team, which was set up to go pick him up, wander 400 yards and pick him up where there was no risk at all. And the major was killed, and we were embarrassed, and we had to go take Panama, so on and so forth. And we replaced him with another drug dealer as president. And now he's costing, you know, he's down there living well in his cell, and who knows where that one will go. Then we spent 10 years creating Saddam Hussein. If you look at the direct involvement, there's a whole litany now that's being printed about how we made this man who he is today. And our current president's fingerprints are over it, all over it from 1982 on, in direct involvement in getting him money, getting him weapons, getting him up, and all the way down to a few months before the war, trying to get people to leave him alone and let him do what he wanted to do. And then, with oh, written instructions, we sent April Glaspie, the ambassador, in to see him on July the 25th to tell him we would not become involved with his border dispute in Kuwait and basically saying if you want to take that northern part you can. And then he took the whole thing. Then we got our feelings hurt. Then we got to worry about Arab oil. Then the Saudis got all upset and nervous that he was coming to Saudi Arabia. And then it was all ego trips and insecurity and and, uh, we tried to turn it into the Super Bowl of wars where the American people got to see smart bombs go down air shafts, never got to see a guy cut to pieces in the desert. Only in America would you have a war, get it over with, and have all the heroes either be generals or politicians. But now, you, if you can show me Sergeant York or Audie Murphy in that war, I'd like to meet him. And war is fought by enlisted men, not by politicians. Now, so I'm just bringing down... to I know what war is. I've been really, really close to war most of my adult life. I know what these guys look like all blown to pieces, close up. I know what it's like for their widows and for their kids and so on and so on and so forth. I know what it's like for guys to come back home from Vietnam and nobody to care about them and spit on them after they spent years over there fighting. Now then, you just don't throw people into war because your bad boy of choice in the Middle East that you spent 10 years creating has embarrassed you. So, you bet I'd talk to the American people about it and you bet we'd have a big debate about it. Now, in the meantime, go ahead and start to build up, get everything in place, so on and so forth. But in turn, before you pull the... the, uh, the, uh, blow the whistle. You want to make sure of the one lesson that we should have learned from Vietnam. If we didn't learn anything else, before you send one person on a battlefield, you first commit the nation, and then you commit the troops. Uh, see, for Congress to duck this, irresponsible. Get the American people in the middle of it. Absolutely. We're out of time.
0: Uh, last question to you. What you know how much activity there is out there in the country, within these states. What's your guess? as to whether or not the 50 states will be signed up and whether or not you'll sure. get in?
1: There is far more activity than I ever thought there would be. I never thought there would be activity in 50 states. I thought really there wouldn't be much activity. And then I thought it would go away in a few days. But at this point in time, it seems to continue to be growing, and I don't think it has anything to do with me. I think it has everything to do with people's concerns about where we are and where we're going. So. Say the people are deeply concerned about: Is the country going to continue to grow and prosper, or are we in decline? Now all the polls and things you've seen confirm that. I believe that's all driven by this. Has nothing to do with me.
0: Your guess, though, in or out? In or out? You. You think you'll be in it or out of it when? But it's all over.
1: Ah, uh, it's too early to tell.
0: Some time frame on when you? What's the date when you have to make a decision? Well, let's let's assume
1: they don't get it done in Texas. It's over. May the sixth. It's over. I can go back to work. And it has to be 50 states? Excuse me. No. Texas is May the 6th. I understand. Yes. No, no. no. I'm saying that's my deal with the American people. Register me in 50 states. I'll drop everything. I will run as your servant. I won't belong to anybody but you if you want me. Uh, And as I've said many, many times, if along the way you find somebody you're more fascinated with, take him. I'll be glad to go back to work.
0: And in Texas, they have to have 54,000 signatures by May 6th.
1: That's my understanding.
0: And they can't have voted in either one of the primaries. That's right. Ross Perot, we're out of time. Thank you. We'll, I assume, pick up from where we are here at some future time.
1: Well, we'll see where it goes. Thanks for listening to the BookNotes Plus podcast. Please rate and review BookNotes Plus, and don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. Questions or comments? We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.